Let's look together to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we come to look into the testimony of your word concerning your love. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see the character of this love for which we ought to be forever thankful. Apply it to our hearts, Lord, and then let it be shown through our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Morton Plank is a hardly a household name, I know, but he was once a very wealthy New York banker, and he was hopelessly in love, Morton Plank was. Um, he was looking to give his new wife a lavish and impressive gift, and so he traded his six-story mansion on New York City's Fifth Avenue for a pearl necklace as a present for his young wife. In today's money, it was a $20 million transaction. Um, Just a few years later, after that purchase, a Japanese entrepreneur developed something called cultured pearls. Pearls that were manufactured instead of uh, found naturally. And the value of the Planck pearl necklace plummeted. And it sold at Mrs. Planck's death in 1956 for $1.4 million. It lost $18.6 million from its original value. Now, despite that steep drop, the pearls are still pricey. Um, 1.4 million is still pricey for pearls. And I wouldn't expect any of you ladies uh, to find the plank pearls under your tree this year, um, even at that cut rate price. I, I probably wouldn't expect it if I were you. The mansion, the plank mansion, that was traded for the necklace, it is today the Cartier flagship store in New York City on Fifth Avenue. And prior to recent events, it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So the value of the property went way up, the value of the pearls went way down. Now, while Morton Plank's gift to his wife ranks in the top 10, it's hardly the most expensive gift a husband has ever presented to his wife. Uh, About 10 years ago now, an Indian businessman who didn't want to be outdone by his brother's gift to his wife of an Airbus jet worth $60 million, bought his own movie star wife an $80 million yacht just because he wanted to do something bigger than his brother did. So he spent $80 million and bought her this fabulous yacht. I guess he was trying to prove that he loved her more than his brother loved his wife, And you know how competitive brothers can be. And I think that's probably what was going on there. Human history is full of the stories of men and women seeking to express their love by lavish gifts, whether it's jewelry or flowers or various means of transportation. Uh, On some occasions, the results have uh, not been, shall we say, positive. Many a husband or a boyfriend has imagined that a particular gift was uh, 
just the right one, just the one that his beloved wanted, only to find out that he had missed that want completely, entirely, and uh, not only wasted his money, but sent the wrong message when he bought the gift. In his own mind, it was the one, it was the thing, this is what she needs to have, this is the best way I can express my love for her, and turned out not to be so. But the reality is that the most meaningful expressions of love are usually less tangible. Sometimes it's a word. Sometimes it's a touch. Sometimes it's just simply listening that conveys that spirit of love. Today we want to continue to consider the extraordinary nature of God's love for you and me. And uh, last week we looked at the fact that his love is freely given to us because it was purchased at the highest price by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so we spent time talking about the freeness of that love, but the cost that it was to Christ. Today we want to take up the fullness of God's love and talk about that, the fullness of God's love for his people. This love of God is so full, beloved, that it provides everything, it supplies everything that that sort of love demands. And it comes short in nothing that might be expected or anticipated. It is lavish. It is abundant. It's brimming over this love of God for his people. And that's appropriate for a love that we can only really know and understand by grace. Paul was constant in his prayers for the folks at Ephesus. And Mr. Brillhart just read to us a few moments ago what Paul's prayer was for the people at Ephesus. <coughs> Excuse me. He was praying that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith, that they being rooted and grounded in love might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he was praying for, for them, that they might have some understanding, some grasp of the character of this great love, this love that's so wide, this love that's so deep. And every believer swims in this sea of God's love and spends his or her whole life after salvation, discovering and exploring its width and its depth and its length and its height. And it's something to be praying about. It's something to be praying about for ourselves and something for us to be praying about for others. And it's something that pastors ought to be praying for for their people. And in thinking about this in the context of what we've talked about in the last few weeks, I realize that that's something I haven't done as faithfully as I should. And I ask you to forgive me for that. Because I should be praying more. That the Lord would reveal these things to you. And that you would have a better understanding and a better sense of the, the, the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of his love. 
The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He said in Isaiah 63, verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all, the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Now, the translators there have used that word mention in this verse. They have Isaiah saying, I will mention this this act of the Lord, this loving kindness of the Lord. But that word mention, at least to our ears, doesn't quite convey the full sense of the idea that's expressed here. And I think it's probably best to think of it this way. Did you ever hear someone say this? Do you have to mention, and then you can fill in the blank, but let's just say, do you have to mention the game-winning home run you hit every time we have a conversation? Do you have to mention it every time? Do you have to bring it into every conversation? That's the way you should think of mention here. That when, the, when Isaiah says, I'm going to mention it, he's saying, I'm, I'm bringing it into every conversation. I'm bringing it into every context. This testimony to the loving kindness of the Lord. When we use it like that, it's much more than just a casual reference. It's a constant habit of calling attention to something that a person is proud of or delights in. And as we do it concerning the loving kindness of the Lord, it's the thing that we delight in and we have joy in bringing it up and mentioning it and calling people's attention to it. I as a believer and the recipient of this great, free, awesome love of God. And it should be the desire of my heart to mention that often and to bring it in whenever I can to any conversation. In this instance, <coughs> Isaiah, the prophet declares that he will go on mentioning the love of the Lord in accord with all that he has bestowed on him in his greatness and his mercy. All of what he's done, says Isaiah, in perfect harmony with the abundant nature of his loving kindness. So I want you to kind of think of it in that way. He's going to continue to make mention of this. All that he does that's in harmony with his love, the character of his love. And in all of us who are believers, we can testify to those things which God has communicated to us that are in harmony with what we know about the character of his love in the way he's dealt with us and the way he's blessed us and the way he's corrected us and tried us and redeemed us. But what are some of the specific characteristics of that love? If we can do that, if we ought to be able to do that, to, to say, well, here's what's happened in my life, and it's in perfect harmony with who God is and how he loves. Well, what are some of those things? And that's what we want to take a moment to look at this morning. First of all, the character of his love allows for no neglect. No neglect. And perhaps there's no more compelling example of devoted, loving attention than that which a mother gives to her infant child. You can just think of all the characteristics that you can apply without much thought to that sort of attention. 
When you just think in your mind, well, what, is it, what kind of attention does a mother give to her newborn? It's tender. Um, it manifests itself in every needed way. You know, what is the need? The, the mother's there to meet that need. Um, the child cries, the child whimpers, the child groans, the child sighs, and the mother's right there. What is the need? What, is, what's, what's, what needs to be taken care of right now? It is sacrificial, and it is continual, sometimes to the neglect of the mother's own health and welfare. In fact, a neglectful mother is so unthinkable to us that the very suggestion of such a thing makes us cringe. When we read about that in the news, and it happens from time to time, we just are, it just causes us to cringe. How could we think, how could a mother be like that? So when the Lord God desires to assure you, as one of his children, that you will never be neglected by him, and that you are the objects of his constant attention, he puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 13 through 16. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth. And break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord answers that complaint by saying, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. Yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And you notice here that the Lord acknowledges that because men and women are sinfully addicted, as Calvin puts it, to self-love, a woman may even forget her nursing child. But the one who loves as God loves cannot and will not forget you not even for a moment in time. His promise is that his attention to your needs, to your life, as one that he loves, is even greater than the attention that a mother has to her newborn child. It's more reliable, it's more dependable, it's more thorough. And I love Calvin's paraphrase of the Lord's words here. He says that the Savior says to you and me here, I cannot look at my hands without beholding you in them. Don't you just love that picture? I can't look at my hands without beholding you in them. So there he is. I look at my hands. I can't look at them without seeing Barb Robinson in them. I can't look at them without seeing Abigail Anderson in them. I can't look at my hands without seeing any one of us in them. I carry you engraved on my heart so that no forgetfulness can erase you. In a word, I cannot forget you without forgetting myself. What is it, beloved, for you and me to be so loved by the Lord Jesus Christ to be in such a position as this? 
that he cannot forget you without forgetting himself. What has he done for us? How has he loved us? Married individuals usually wear wedding rings for several reasons. But the tradition, actually, stems in part from wearing that symbol of pledged love in a place where whenever you look at your hand, it appears before you. That's why it's there. It's not just, you know, the ring of undying love and so on as it's expressed. It's here because whenever I look at this hand, I am to be reminded that I have pledged my love to someone and that she has pledged her love to me. And that that love exists between us. And it's a constant reminder of that reality. Why, when people are looking to break their marriage bonds, why is one of the first things they do is take that ring off? Why do they do that? They want to get that picture of connection out of the way. That's what they're trying to do, both for themselves and for those they're deceiving. And the Lord has our names not in a ring, but engraved on the palms of his hands, as it were. Matthew Henry says his setting them thus as a seal upon his arm denotes his setting them as a seal upon his heart and his being ever mindful of them and their interests. So the first quality of this love that we can look at and, and think about is it is never neglectful. And every believer can, can bear testimony to that. To times when they didn't think anybody cared about them, but the Lord was showing his love and his care for them. Secondly, his love supplies every good thing needed. And it not only provides what is needed, but it sees to it that that provision is profitable. Now, provision and profit is what God supplies by his love. And perhaps I can illustrate it this way with a story I read recently. A busy wife, through no lack of attention, but just because of the busyness of her life, forgot her husband's birthday. And she wouldn't have remembered at all on his birthday, except she got home from work first and went through the mail and saw these cards that looked like greeting cards. And she thought, well, who'd be sending greet? Oh, it's that day. And she had prepared nothing and had nothing for her husband, but the cards jogged her memory. When she got home, she also found the package on the porch because uh, the husband had ordered a box of socks online. So she quickly took that box, wrapped it up in birthday wrapping paper, put a bow on it, made a handwritten card, and when her husband came home, she handed it to him and said, Happy birthday, I bet you thought I forgot. And, of course, as soon as he opened the box, he recognized his socks. Um, there was a little blush and a, and a kiss and so on, but they both laughed over it. But it illustrates a gesture of genuine love. I mean, she did it 
because she loved him and she, she didn't want to make it appear that she had just completely forgotten. But it was hardly profitable. Now, they were the socks he'd already ordered for himself that he actually needed. The love of the Lord not only provides for you and me what is actually needed, but the Lord has a way of taking it beyond that and actually enriching us in many ways through that provision of our needs so that we're not just getting what we need, but we're ending up with more than we need because it's been enriched by his love for us. If you look at Jeremiah 31 and verses 11 through 15, you'll see a prophecy that initially refers to Israel's return from their captivity. But it goes far beyond that. And it foreshadows beautifully the redeemed of Christ's church, enjoying all the prophets of being the objects of his covenant love. You have a paragraph here that Matthew Henry says is publishing to the world as well as to the church the purposes of God's love concerning his people. Let's look at what he says here in Jeremiah 31. Begin verse 11. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and has ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. So do you see it right there, right away? It's subtle, but I hope you see it. What is the Lord doing? He's relieving them from someone who is stronger than them. But it doesn't end there, does it? By that relief, they now return to Zion, and they not only return to Zion, but now they are streaming into Zion with the goodness of the Lord, with wheat and new wine, with the young of the flock for the herd. When they were under that oppression, they didn't have anything to offer for sacrifice. But once that oppression was released over them, now they have all of this to bring to the house of God to glorify him for. All of these blessings, all of this abundance, which has come as a result of being relieved. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old men together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, if you were reading along with me, that last part's kind of shocking, isn't it? You're reading along about all this joyous and wonderful thing, and then all of a sudden there's this talk about lamentation and bitter bitter, uh, weeping. I hope you see there, beloved, first, the link between all this joy and blessing and the prophesied work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It comes abruptly here at the end of this beautiful hymn. 
regarding all of God's loving kindness towards his people. How is this loving kindness going to come and flow in among all the people of God? How are they going to have this abundance? How are they going to know this love and all the profit of this love? Because there's going to be weeping and bitterness. And who is that all related to, this weeping and this bitterness among these children? Well, you remember where you've heard this before, right? This verse. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What we see here is that all the blessings spoken of in that beautiful delineation of the prophet that comes to those who are relieved from oppression, all the blessings spoken of rest ultimately in the fulfillment of the scriptures relating to the Son of God, who is the Redeemer, who is the one who ransoms us, who is the one who by that ransom opens this blessed floodgate of divine blessing fully so that the whole manifestation of this love can come out and pour out over all of us. And look at the the expressions of provision and profit that Jeremiah employs here. Their soul shall be like a well-watered garden. To really get the full impact of that, you have to put yourself in the Near East, in the parched desert wilderness, and if you're sitting there, could anything better, picturing blessed abundance, be set up before you than a well-watered garden, cool and refreshing and satisfying. And that's the picture that's brought here, from this desert, from this burning desert, into this cool and refreshment that has been provided by the Lord. And if you've been working on the Sunday school memory verse, you'll easily be able to see that Isaiah was inspired to use the same imagery, wasn't he? In talking about God's blessing on his church. Then he says, I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. And that's all going to come in its fullest realization when we enter into the rest prepared for us by Christ. It's referred to in Revelation 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, for the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the fullness of this. You talk about profiting from the love of God, from the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going from this veil of tears into a world where there is no sorrow and there are no tears. You're not just being relieved 
You're being carried by the grace of God, by the love of God into a realm like nothing that you can now fully imagine. That's how much you're profiting from this love of Christ being bestowed on you. That this is your future if you're in Christ. This is what lies before you. This being before the throne of God, standing in the presence of Almighty God, surrounded by saints and angels and glorifying this God who loves you. That's the prophet, the fullness of the prophet that comes to you because of your redemption. And even now the saints taste of it. What's it say in Psalm 1? Many of you know it by heart. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And what's he going to be like? He's going to be like a tree. Where? Planted by the rivers of water. That does what? Bring forth its fruit in due season. So it's not just being redeemed and being on the edge of blessing, but it's being redeemed and brought into this place where you're like a tree planted by the rivers of water, constantly watered by the grace and the word of God and constantly bringing forth fruit, whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. The third thing here is, he says, I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. And the picture here is of the ministers of the gospel filled with the spirit of good things from the Lord, discovering them in God's word, experiencing them personally, and then being able to feed others with the knowledge and understanding of them that he has. In the context, immediate context of the passage in Jeremiah, it's the priests, they were barely surviving. But when the people came back from captivity and they were blessed, they started bringing their sacrifices into the house of God. And as they brought their sacrifices, a portion of that belonged to the priests. And the priests had more than they ever had before. And having more than they ever had before, it encouraged them to then minister to the people and to serve the people. And it's a picture of the blessings that come to us from God as he blesses those who are called to preach. So that's the second thing, that everything we need that will be provided for us and his love sees to it that we profit from what is provided. The third thing is this. Because of the nature of his love, you may expect the most faithful chastening. Congratulations. You can expect the most faithful chastening. This is what we often call in our world the tough love of God. But it's as vital to us as all the profiting love that we have. It is a vital part of his covenant faithfulness to us. And you run into it in both Testaments. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord says to Israel, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, 
so the Lord your God chastens you. What does he mean by putting it that way? You should know in your heart. Well, I can remember on very rare occasions doing things that I knew my father would not like. And I knew that if I got caught, I was going to be disciplined. I knew it in my heart. I knew it because I knew my father loved me and I knew my father. And because of both of those things, I knew that if I got caught, I was going to be punished. And that's what the Lord is saying to Israel. You should know in your heart. Why should you know that? Because you know God loves you. You know you're his people. You know that he's called you for his own glory. And if you know that, then you know that he's going to discipline you. He's going to chasten you. You should be clearly aware of this matter, Moses says. You should be meditating, thinking about it. It should be a deliberate thing in your daily thinking, speaking, and acting that you'll be held accountable. In short, one of the daily blessings that you should expect from God's love is this father-like discipline, which includes chastening. It's not punishment. It's discipline. And the book of Hebrews, of course, quotes this verse, saying in Hebrews 12, 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And there are three things here that reflect the fullness of God's love. First of all, his love for you is too sincere to allow you to put it in jeopardy. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That his love for you is too sincere to allow you to put it in jeopardy. You start getting too far afield from where you ought to be, and who you ought to be, and the Lord's going to correct you and bring you back. It may be in tears. It may be in sorrow and deep repentance, but he's going to bring you back. Because he loves you too much to allow you to put that love in jeopardy. And Christians talk about this, and we've talked about it before, that sometimes we wonder why we can't get away with stuff. You know, we look at other people and they act with impunity, those who don't know the Lord, and they seem to be able to get away with anything. And we try it and, boy, we're caught right away. Or we're reprimanded right away. Or our conscience comes bearing down on us right away. Why is that? Because God loves you. That's why. He loves you so much and so sincerely that he will not allow you to put that love in jeopardy. It's also too sincere to let you off too easily. You've all seen it. That child who's disobeying his parents and the parents say, stop it. And the child keeps doing it and the parent says, stop it. And the child keeps doing it and the parent says, stop it. And then the parent gets really mad and says, if you don't stop it, I'm really going to have to do something. And they do it again. And the parent says, I'm telling you, if you don't stop, you're really going to have to. And the kid just keeps doing what he's doing. Why? 
because he knows there's not really going to be any consequence for what he's doing. That's all just open and empty threats. The Lord loves you too much to treat you that way. He will correct. He will hold us accountable. Now, I'm not talking about paying for our sins. Our sins are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about paying for them. We're talking about the consequences of our sin and the correction that brings us back into walking in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what we're referring to here. And thirdly, it's too sincere to allow you to suspect that it's born out of anything but love for you. And that's the amazing thing. Um, The Puritans used to talk about kissing the rod. And what they meant was, after you got your beating, you took the rod that you were beaten with and you kissed it in thankfulness for the correction. And what is communicated to us through the correction that the Lord gives to us is that love. The believer who is corrected by the Lord, even when that correction is is hard, and even when it brings us to to tears, even when it brings us to our knees, is compelled by the grace of God to recognize that that discipline is given as an act of God's love towards us. It's not out of animosity. It's not out of anger. It's not out of hatred. It's out of love that he disciplines us. And we're forced to acknowledge that by the goodness of his grace to us. David saw the correction of the Lord and it was bitter for him to accept. But he acknowledged it as a testimony of the love of God for him. Fourthly, his love for you makes every injury done to you an injury to him. And he promises to defend you. And again, this is an expression of the fullness of God's love that's found in both Testaments. If you look in the book of the prophecy of Zechariah, You read this in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. One commentator, Dr. Wardlaw, sums it up this way. He who injures God's people, the objects of of his jealous affection and care, ensures retribution from him. Just think about how well defended your eye is. All the things employed to to protect your eye. The quick responding reflexes. All of those are referred to here to show how dear you are to God in Christ and how well defended you are by his love. His love surrounds you like a shield in Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. 
And in what is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans chapter 8, where Paul states that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ? Remember that in Romans chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 54 is the Old Testament equivalent to that. Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness, my loving kindness, shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. And the prophet uses a picture of those things most difficult to imagine ever disappearing. You look out on the horizon out there. Can you ever imagine a day when Mount Rainier won't stand there? Massive and majestic against the skyline? Nevertheless, such a day will come. But God's loving covenant with you and Jesus Christ will never falter or fail. And lastly, his love of you is free of shame or embarrassment. Is it not pathetic that you and I are sometimes ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ when there's nothing but honor in it? But he's never ashamed to be identified with you when there's so much that is dishonorable? Isn't that an amazing thing? That he is never ashamed of you to be identified with you, to call you his people, to call you his son or his daughter. But there are times when we're ashamed to acknowledge our relationship with him. The book of Hebrews places Christ before his father's throne, standing there with you and me. And he says in Hebrews 2.13, the second half of the verse, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, I won't dare to speak for any other this morning, only for myself. But if I were standing there alone without him, without his borrowed righteousness, I would be a mightly and a motley and deplorable sight. And there would be no joy, no pride, no complacency in claiming me as a son. But thanks be to God, his great love has fixed on you and me, redeemed us and fitted us out, fitted us out in him to be his beloved children. Christ and his people are one, says John Gill, and that he is not ashamed to own them before God and men. That's what is declared here. And I want to ask you, is that your story this morning? And if it is, beloved, What is it like for you to swim, if I can use that term, in the ocean of this kind of love that provides all these things for you, that never neglects you, that provides blessings for you, that not only provide your needs, but profit you in other ways, that promises to chastise and correct you in the hour when you need it? What is it like for you to swim in that sort of love? This love where you're never neglected, but every demand of love is met by him. Where you're 
Every need is met and you profit and prosper from every token of that love. What is it to be faithfully scourged and chastened? What's it like to be the apple of his eye? What is that like for you? To be the apple of God's eye, to know that if someone reaches out their hand in an effort to harm you, it's like they're reaching out against him. And what is it for you to know that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to love you freely and unconditionally? Now, maybe some of this has never been explored by you before. You know his love, but you haven't searched out its fullness. Do so, because you're swimming in an ocean that has no depth. Maybe for others you hear me talking, but you don't know this sort of love at all because you don't know God and Jesus Christ. All I can say is that this is the day to search that love out. This is the day to seek it under the promise of Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus speaking says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. He says in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You either know this love or you're outside of this love. If you know it, then plunge into it. Discover the fullness of it. Pray that God would reveal the the fullness of it to you so that you can see all these things as they played out in your life and rejoice and, and find comfort in this love of the Lord. And if you don't know it, this is the time to seek it, to reach out for it, to understand what it is to know the love of God, that love which will fix on you unconditionally. Know that love which has come because of who Christ is and because of his love for you and the sacrifice which he made on the cross of Calvary for your sins. This is an extraordinary love. And all who enjoy it today, if they have nothing else, have that to give thanks for this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now to bless these thoughts to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the rich character of this love which you have for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would seek to understand it to rejoice in it, to know all that there is in it for our comfort and consolation and the encouragement of our faith. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have taken your love for granted. It's far too easy to do. And Lord, 
please grant us the courage and grace to never be ashamed of him who is not ashamed of us. Where we ask all these things in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Before we sing our final hymn, um, Ezekiel wants to share a little bit about the hymn with you all. I will be reading the history of the hymn we are about to sing, We Gather Together. Psalm 102.15 says this, So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth your glory. Those who have visited the Netherlands with its picturesque dikes and windmills may be unaware of the terrific struggle for religious freedom that took place there in the 16th and 17th centuries. In 1555, the Low Country was given to King Philip II of Spain by his father, Emperor Charles V of Germany. Philip was an arch-Catholic, but the winds of Calvinistic Reformation had reached the Netherlands. Roman Catholic churches were plundered, and the authority of Spain was resisted. In 1557, King Philip sent the dreaded Duke of Alba, Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, to bring the Netherlands back into the Pope's fold. He established a reign of terror, during which 10,000 people were executed and another 40,000 exiled. His ruling council was called the Council of Troubles, but it's better known to history as the Blood Council. The bodies of thousands of people were hung in the streets and on the doorposts of houses. Alva didn't hesitate to massacre whole cities. An attack on Leiden was stopped only by cutting the dikes and flooding the countryside. On January 6, 1579, the Catholic southern regions of the Netherlands, modern Belgium, declared their allegiance to Philip. But three weeks later, the northern part, modern Holland, declared its independence, led by the courageous William of Orange. Holland Holland was devastated by warfare, and in the process, William was cut down by an assassin's dagger. But the brave nation would not be denied, and eventually Spain lost its hold on the Dutch Republic. This hymn, We Gather Together, which Americans associate with their Thanksgiving holiday, was actually written sometime in 1597 to celebrate Holland's freedom from Spain. Its author, an unknown Dutchman, was full of thanksgiving that his people were finally free from Spanish tyranny and free to worship as they chose. Notice how he expressed this theme in these three beautiful verses. The wicked oppressing now cease from distressing. So from the beginning, the fight we were winning. Thou, Lord, wast at our side, all glory be thine. We all do extol thee, thou leader triumphant, and pray that thou still our defender wilt be. Let thy congregation escape tribulation. Thy name be ever praised, O Lord, make us free.